This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation and listeners like you. Calliopeia supports projects interweaving spirituality, culture, and ecology. We are grateful for their support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners. To learn more about the Calliopeia Foundation, visit calliopeia.org. To make a donation to For the Wild, visit forthewild.world slash donate or support us through Patreon. Welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. This week, we are rebroadcasting our interview with dear friends So and Pinar of Queer Nature, originally broadcasted in December of 2018. We hope you enjoy this special Encore episode. Yeah, I think that I grew up in a world where to find belonging as a queer person, you moved to cities and, you know, met other humans who were queer. And and I think that there's still and will always be so much um, intelligence and, and beauty to that. And I also feel, I, I feel like I felt inspired over the years to just not not like reverse that at all like not say like oh we shouldn't gather in urban areas or like this is wrong but rather question how we can build tools of resilience for being in like rural and um you know i don't like using the word wilderness but remote let's just say remote settings hello and welcome to for the wild podcast i'm ayana young today we are speaking with So and Pinar from Queer Nature. Queer Nature is an education and social sculpture project based on Arapaho, Utdi, and Cheyenne territories that actively dreams into decolonially informed queer ancestral futurism through mentorship in place-based skills with awareness of post-industrial, globalized, ecocidal context. Place-based skills include naturalist studies, handcrafts, quote, survival skills, and recognition of colonial and indigenous histories of land, and are framed in a container that emphasizes deep listening and relationship building with living and non-living earth systems. Co-envisioned by Pinar and So Sinopolis Lloyd, Queer Nature designs and facilitates nature-based workshops and multi-day immersions intended to be financially, emotionally, and physically accessible to LGBTQ2 plus people and QTBIPOCs. Queer Nature carries the story and hope that these spaces create resilient narratives of belonging for folks who have often been made to feel by systems of oppression that they biologically, socially, or culturally don't belong. Queer Nature has collaborated with Wilderness Awareness School, the University of Colorado Boulder, Naropa University, Women's Wilderness, and Rewild Portland. Well, Pinar and So, I'm truly grateful that you were both able to make time for this conversation. And 
Thank you so much for all the work you are doing with such meticulous care for people and place. And before we begin, I would like to open this moment up to each of you to introduce yourselves in the way or in any way you feel called to, whether it be acknowledging your ancestry or a brief telling of the journey of connection that brought queer nature into fruition. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so my name is Panar, and um, I use they, them, their pronouns. And yes, I think introducing my ancestors feels really in alignment. Um, so my matrilineage is Wonka, which is native to the Andes in East Kuchaka area, as well as Chinese uh, from Spanish enslavement from the 1700s in so-called Peru. And then my patrilineage is Turkish, which is where I actually grew up for half of my childhood. And I also want to acknowledge uh, my queer and trans ancestors, which in my lineage, my Andean lineage, we are called Kwari Warmis, which is a two-spirit kind of cousin down in the Andes. And lastly, one of the things that I also really love to introduce is um, actually really inspired by Robin Wall Kimmerer in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, where she introduces the lands that have raised her. And I wanted to introduce one of the Creeks who, have, who has raised me on Yavapai and Apache territories named Hakavsua. And this might come up in our interview, but they've been so in instrumental in um, how queer nature runs and how I do my work and who I keep accountable to in my life. And um, also wanting to name that I'm neurodivergent and a psychiatric survivor, as well as a suicide survivor. And this is such an integral piece of what brings me to nature connection and my work in the world as someone who's experienced parallel realities and has felt most of my belonging to the more than human kin. Mm, thank you for that. And so I'd love to hear from you as well. Thanks, Ayana. And I also just want to say thank you for also inviting me to be here because I, I know that you might not often do interviews with two people at once. And so I just am really grateful for that. And yeah, and excited. And yeah, a little bit about myself. I am white, uh, queer person of Anglo-Saxon um, settler descent on my dad's side. And my mom is a, a Greek immigrant. So on her side, I'm first generation on Turtle Island. And yeah, I grew up in Alnobac or also called Abenaki territory, also known as Vermont, um, which the northern hardwood forests are really dear, near and dear to my heart. And I think that something else I like to talk about or sort of pick up the thread of when introducing myself and talking about nature connection is well, a couple things. One of them is my connection to sheep and shepherding. And throughout college, I basically became really curious about um, small scale agriculture and particularly like cheese making and shepherding traditions that were, you know, more small scale and um, organic based or organic ish. And that was kind of for me a way to connect with actually my my Greek heritage and ancestry since my most of my that half of my family does live in Greece and I lived there in elementary school and have just just this nostalgia and connection to that land that I think is kind of common to people who are from two different cultures and I, I uh, or multiple cultures more than two and I know Pinar might be able to relate to that and so I basically embarked upon this journey of 
yeah, like working, working with sheep and doing um, shepherding on some different farms around so-called New England. And there was something about that that was really just deeply informative in terms of the journey I kind of later went on in terms of delving into place-based skills and so-called paleolithic skills, I guess. There was something about sheep that really inspired me, I think partially because our culture sees them as as dumb and that's often like this trope like that they they are these complicit or complacent animals and what i saw instead was this deep intelligence of like the flock or the hive the hive mind which i think is something that we really fear in this culture and and that just really drew me in like that non-human and often kind of even scary form of intelligence to us and i started to become really curious about the ways of belonging and being in relationship with land that were more interdependent and interrelational rather than just this narrative of sort of self-sufficiency and individuality. So yeah, I, that's actually how I, I got started sort of on this journey of nature connection. And I can probably say more about that later, but I just wanted to touch upon it for now. I really appreciate hearing both of your, well, a, a little bit into both of your stories and Gosh, I really, really enjoyed hearing so about your connection with the sheep and how derogatory we can be with sheep. Oh, sheeple, the sheep, you know, kind of how we speak down to them as if they're stupid. And this whole idea of hive mind and the brilliance and the intelligence in that. So I, I, I would love to hear more about that later. I just want to say that, you know, so much of queer nature's work is intertwined in narratives of belonging. And I'd really like to now begin this interview with a dialogue on the overlap between queer identity and the legacy of dominant environmentalism, which are both very much about not belonging. You know, as mentioned in Queer Nature's bio, queer folk have long been made to feel that they don't biologically or socially or culturally belong. And this is a whole conversation in and of itself. But I also can't help but think about how much of the environmental legacy that many of us are familiar with and the ethos around wild spaces is that humans don't belong there either. And then traditional conservation has situated humans as merely visitors in, quote, wild places who are meant to leave without a trace, suggesting that our more-than-human kin couldn't possibly remember our presence or the relationship we have with them. So I would just love if both of you could speak to the intention of belonging and why it's at the core of the work queer nature facilitates. Yeah, uh, that's such a great series of questions. And I almost feel like we could spend the whole interview like just delving into that. And I think it's, yeah, a really rich place to start. Yeah, I think when I think about belonging, and I've been thinking, we've both been thinking a lot about this lately and belonging... I feel like can almost run a risk these days of becoming sort of a new buzzword or like catchphrase, sort of like sustainability. And I just want to be wary of that, especially this, this is so speaking to like, just as a, a white person and a settler, I feel like I have, I, I'm doing this dance of deep care and openness and listening around what belonging means. Um, but I think what, one of the things it means to me is sort of being entangled within a web of relationships of reciprocity, but also accountability, and not always in a way that's totally, that totally feels good either. But because accountability, I think is, is, is 
sometimes often about conflict. Um, so I, I think that's kind of one of my basic definitions of belonging and um, that it off really does include interspecies relationships as well. And also that it's a process. I feel like belonging is a noun, but I feel like it's productive for me and for us to think of it as more of a verb. And I also don't know if it's a process that's ever complete. And that kind of comes back to my own consciousness as a white settler on Turtle Island. Um, and like, I don't know if I can really say that, like, I can't promise belonging as a, as a nature-based mentor or practitioner, like as if it's sort of the result of an equation. Um, or I can't say that I, like belonging has been accomplished here on Turtle Island. But I think what we what we can do or what we're interested in doing, which is why it, in one of the notes that that you sent to us before, I like that you mentioned like the intention of belonging, because I think we have this intention around place based skills as basically skills of belonging and, and interspecies relationship cultivation as skills of belonging, but also that a skill of belonging that might not be as concrete is challenging different supremacies like white supremacy while we're engaging in these skills and privilege and just acknowledging our role in that and that that's also like that these anti-racist and um, anti-oppressive stances are also like skills of belonging as well as like learning you know um, how to identify different plants or how to create medicine or how to you know make make fire from rubbing sticks together that's kind of one place I would start and then another point that I wanted to make before handing it over to Pinar is I really love that you brought up this narrative of, you know, this, of course, false narrative of wilderness as this place where we're just visitors. And this is, of course, a very colonial conception of wilderness. And it also reminds me of the ethic of leave no trace, which we as, you know, as wilderness guides encounter a lot. And there's so much that's good about the intention of leave no trace. But one thing that we both encounter a lot is that we do impact and change the land, both as people living now and people who lived in the past, including Paleolithic peoples and land-based peoples. And I think there's sometimes a narrative that that like to be in harmony with the land is to not change change it or change your environment. When, you know, now there's so much research coming out about how other like non-human animals have culture and change the land like beavers of course we've kind of known that for a while but you know other creatures like bower birds down in the tropics who basically have have forms of cultural transmission and build these elaborate structures that they cannot build if they're in, in captivity or they just build kind of little deranged like versions of them so i feel like that question of changing the land and impact so it's not really about that we don't have an impact or that we should try to sort of cease our impact, but it's rather like, how do we want to have an impact? So that's just, I'll just leave it at that and then see if Pinar or Ayana, if you want to respond to any of that. I can add something. I just, one thing that really stood out to me with what how you began the question is, you know, how there's this narrative that queer people don't belong, period, but also, just don't belong in our bodies or don't belong to the earth or to culture. And one thing that I want to be really clear about is trans and non-binary people have always existed and always will. And the narrative that we are a new phenomena is a colonial story and that two-spirit and other indigenous gender expansiveness is older than America and that 
we are um, ecological formations and also ecological indicators of health of place and of culture. So that's something that is really important for me to share. And also, yeah, just like really sit with that, that there is this like, there is this narrative of erasure of, of queerness, of gender expansiveness, of transness, of two-spirit folks. And yeah, and just really challenging that, that we're actually, you know, we do belong and um, we have the right to be here and, and bring our gifts to the world and how important those gifts are right now, especially since, you know, in my Andean tradition, there is something called Pachacuti, which essentially means like a cataclysmic change to the culture as we know it. And cosmologically speaking, like the or, the first Pachacuti to happen, at least in like the Incan empire or the Incan culture, there was actually like this, it brought up a lot of fear, you know, for the people. And the story goes that like the Kwariwarmi people, the third gender or the gender liminal people were actually invoked at that time of transition during the first Pachacuti because like we know how to move through liminality because we are liminal people. And that's something that I think about so often is like, you know, this idea of Pachacuti being a cataclysmic change to our culture as we know it to me is actually really an, pretty much a parallel way of saying that whatever the culture is in the moment is going through a rite of passage. And in, in a rite of passage, um, there are three stages, which is like the severance stage and then the threshold slash liminal stage. And then lastly, the reincorporation stage of coming back. And what I find really fascinating is that that liminal space is a place where, at least in my tradition, the Kwariwarmis, we know very intimately. And so that's something that I also want to bring in as we're discussing what we're discussing. And and it, it makes me think furthermore about how around like environmentalism, especially around like how we look at land is really steeped in white environmentalism of, of we can't leave a trace, which I totally understand. And there's very beautiful reasons, you know, that are really honorable to like take care of land and steward and being relationship with land. And it reminds me, you know, eight years ago when I was formally studying deep ecology, we were reading a lot of white cishet men or cis heterosexual men or cisgendered heterosexual men, as well as sometimes white cishet women discussing how essentially people are a plague of this earth. And around this time, I was involved with indigenous solidarity work in Black Mesa. And whenever I brought up decolonization, no one saw the relevance to deep ecology in my program. And I just found that really upsetting at the time. And the analysis, yeah, I just feel like there's this idea that all humans, this colonial idea that all humans are bad. There's this generalization rather than seeing who has systematically perpetuated ecocide. And sometimes I wonder, you know, I think this is really, this is changing in some ways in deep ecology of bringing in more decolonization and indigenous perspectives, which I'm incredibly grateful for, although it's been very slow moving. And I just am so curious of this like lack of analysis and or what has been historically a lack of analysis of like bringing in white supremacy and settler colonialism in that, yeah, in that inquiry. 
And that's just something that I'm really curious about. And I know something that so has brought up in terms of exploring what ecocide means has been really impactful for me. We've been, we discussed this quite a bit in our work. And something that I love that so brings in is they're Greek and they studied um, ancient Greek as well, that the root for ecocide, ecos, um, essentially means household. And one of the things that they were discussing is how ecocide means not just the systematic killing of the environment, the living environment, but actually the killing of our ability to be at home, which is the dispossession of belonging. And, you know, for folks of different marginalized identities, ecocide results in displacement, lack of access to land-based living, the creation of militarized borders, and so many other things. So this is something that we often think about is like how environmentalism that is not explicitly anti-oppressive is complicit in um, white supremacy as well as, you know, human supremacy and other of the project of settler colonialism as well. So this is things that we are so passionate about exploring, not just on our own, but within our own communities and um, other folks who are discussing this around like the intersection of decolonization. I really appreciate you, Pinar, talking about that queerness is not something new. It's trans isn't new. It's not some trend that's just of today. This has been something that has, this is a part of our humanity from the beginning. And it's really important to remember that it's been the colonization and systems of oppression and white supremacy that have squelched any way of being that wasn't what the dominant culture prescribed. And I, I think that's such an important point. And the deep ecology and environmentalism not taking into account indigenous perspectives and uh, people of color's perspectives. I mean, all of these points are so huge in trying to understand these massive systems. And if we're not looking at it with that lens, and if we're not doing a deep analysis then what are we really doing? We're really just kind of perpetuating this uh, rat wheel that we're never going to get out of if we don't actually look at 
like look under the rocks, you know, dig, dig a little deeper and start to see how all of this was compounded and built on top of one another. So I, I so, gosh, I so respect both of your analysis. And I, I learned so much just in that one question. Um, I want to bring up this quote that Queer Nature has written, quote, the binary doesn't need to be destroyed, but rather blown open and expanded to reflect the complexity of our ecological and celestial kin. I stand for queerness that is inextricably informed by interspecies solidarity, by lichen, dust chorus, swamps, coral, and cryptbiotic soil. Queerness is not another venue for the simulation of human exceptionalism and white supremacy that serves the project of settler colonialism. It is a devotional practice of decentering our human centrism to continually expand our co-liberation and remember that our queerness is a disruptive, remediative fruit of the earth, end quote. Gosh, that was, that was so beautifully written. Mm. Um, I'm wondering if you could expand upon how queerness can destabilize supremacy, or furthermore, how an ecologically informed awareness of gender is imperative in destabilizing supremacy. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that quote. It was kind of co-written by the both of us, but um, the majority of it was written by me, Pinar. And yeah, it's such a good question. It actually makes me think about back to my queer and like transcestor like lineage of Kwari Warmi. And because I can only kind of, it don't, it feels important for me to talk about my own experience of gender as well as like that's culturally informed rather than just saying like you know queerness as a whole so I'll just move into that a little bit and I'll probably also move into the larger picture but as I was sharing around like how Kwari Warmi's essentially were came to be in our cultural story because of the Pachacuti at least the first Pachacuti and colonization is also a Pachacuti that we're still moving through, I believe. And it's often something that we discuss is that, you know, whose dystopia or apocalypse are we living in right now? And how, you know, a lot of indigenous folks are, have been like living in apocalypse of sorts for, you know, since 1492. But that's something that I'm just so passionate about is thinking about the role of liminality, you know, specifically talking about Kwari Warmies and this idea that like Kwari Warmies are people who move between the masculine and the feminine, as well as people who move between or see and have gifts around the transition between death and birth and um, midwives and as well as like hospice of sorts. And just like these like spaces that are unknown to us, right? And to me that that feels really deeply um, personal, especially in my, the story that I was talking or how I was introducing myself earlier of being a psychiatric survivor and being a person who has been deeply like immersed in liminal spaces that actually were pretty pathologized growing up. And also, you know, having experiences with being institutionalized for having these experiences in liminal spaces or in liminal realities, as well as with the more than human world. But as I've come to find out, I, as I have been doing more research on my, um, specifically around Kwari Warmi, that these are the gifts that, you know, we bring. Um, and so in a lot of ways, I feel like with Kwari Warmi medicine in particular, I do feel like it does destabilize a lot around supremacy because, you know, since we are 
the culture is moving through a rite of passage in so many ways and what some people are calling like the Anthropocene. It just feels like we need these liminal, we're in a liminal space, so we need guides to help us move through liminality. And this idea that we're like grasping in, onto a story, like the dominant narrative of like, no, this we are living this, essentially this story that's an ecocidal story, a genocidal story, and like hanging on to it, that perpetuates and like upholds so many different supremacies, including white supremacy, to have the liminal folks come in and really aid that transition and kind of like literally a death, you know, because rites of passage really discuss like psycho-spiritual deaths as well as sometimes physical deaths, but what needs to be let go and what no longer serves and what needs to be decomposed back into this earth. And, you know, and I feel like for so many reasons, like white supremacy and the project of settler colonialism has like, is ready to die. And it's been so apparent for so long, you know, and I think it's in the death throes right now. And so, yeah, just having those guides towards the transition right now feels so integral. And to bring it back to like queerness as well, I feel like queerness is not the only way to disrupt and remediate supremacy. It's, you know, it's pretty prevalent in our queer community for folks to use queerness like as a band-aid not to look at their whiteness and how they can uphold, you know, anti-indigeneity and anti-blackness. So that's also something to also remember for me is like, you know, we we have to, there's so much magic in queerness and there's also so much work we need to do in our communities that's like nestled right now within white supremacy as well as settler colonialism. So that's also something that we I'm really passionate about being in conversation with with our communities and like, you know, being in conversation in ways that are inviting to more dialogue and more healing and not necessarily like ones that are about like criticism and disempowerment, but rather like, how are we going to move through this together right now? You know, and with all of our differences and within like the queer community, but also beyond the queer community, um, because, you know, within, within our ecological communities, biodiversity creates resilience. So listening to all the stories and really amplifying and uplifting the, the ones who are most impacted in our communities feels like such an integral part of moving through the Pachacuti and moving through the liminal space that we're in right now as a species. So yeah, I, I hope that answers your question. I have so many more thoughts. And I also bringing back to like the quote that you read too, like my individual queerness is riparian and riparian, you know, means like t- essentially one um, that is like related to rivers and creeks and specifically within like an ecosystem and an ecological community. And I just also want to say too, that like my queerness is really held accountable by those systems, you know, by rivers and creeks, and especially the one who has raised me, Hakapsua, and they have been my queer elder and really just expanding that too. Cause like our queer communities have remained very human centric, which for really good reason, because we've moved through so much trauma together as um, as a community and as communities. So we're doing very intra-species healing right now, which makes so much sense at the moment, but really remembering to like expand, expand ourselves to our capacities, which are, you know, queerness is really informed by the earth and is informed by 
so much more than just our human bodies and our human intelligences and our and so much more than just that. So just wanting to also name that as well and see if so wants to answer anything. Um, yeah, wow. I, I just appreciate <clears throat> everything that you said, Pinar. <clears throat> and I'm trying to even remember like the, the, how the question was framed, but I feel like <clears throat> it was something about kind of queer ecology and how also queerness can destabilize different supremacies. So I feel like what what I would add to that is also like just what queer means to me. And I think it means something different to everyone. And I know some people listening to this might not know what queer, what we even mean when we say queer. And I feel like especially in the context of ecology, um, you know, and the study of relationships between beings and between living systems and non-living systems, I feel like to me, queer kind of indicates non-binary, but I don't actually mean like, cause I mean, I also identify as non-binary, like as my gender, but I actually don't mean it just as a gender identity. I mean it like as sort of like a questioning of, of different dualities or dichotomies and, and also a sort of hybridity. It could be a cultural hybridity or there's like sort of a natural type of hybridity that is present being a, a settler on this land as well that feels relevant. And, and then also, uh, you know, another thing I associate with queerness really is mystery and mysticism. And, and I think a core tenet of mysticism is knowing, basically knowing that the divine or whatever your notion of the divine is, be it the universe or nature, or that it can't be fully grasped intellectually and that surrender is really required in the face of, of that unknowing and that mystery. And, so to me, this this all feels very relevant to talking about ecology and environment and challenging notions of futurity or, or futurism that are present in sort of dominant views of environmentalism. And so to me, like in terms of ecology, queerness is kind of a growth or a growth is a weird word because I think it, it is used a lot in sort of capitalistic ways. But I think a better term is becoming like a becoming from some sort of destabilization or dissolution of fixed categories, or you know, a becoming from an in-between space or an edge space, which, as we know from studying ecotones or edges in in bioregions or in ecological systems, those are spaces of such fertility and fecundity. And so, yeah, that's something that I that I also wanted to bring in, <clears throat> and. I think an example of of sort of this becoming from destabilization or dissolution is, you know, something that evolutionary biologists talk about, which is also kind of a de- debated or contested concept. And it's the concept of acceptation, which is basically almost a counterpoint to adaptation, although it's also part of adaptation. And it's the process by which features different features of bodies might acquire functions for which they were not originally sort of adapted to or not originally for. And a really common example of this is feathers, which were originally found, you know, in the fossil record on dinosaurs who didn't fly. And they were, you know, the ancestors of modern birds. And so I love thinking about this. And also to to say that this is a controversial thing, because there's some evolutionary biologists who say, well, nothing was actually ever designed what it's currently used for. So there's just this interesting queerness there where I feel like, yeah, what, what are we, what adaptations are we 
gaining or, or, or discovering as queer people that are kind of these acceptations or these responses to our weird and sort of bizarre and maybe pre or post apocalyptic environment that that are um you know coming out of actually that that trouble and that um it's kind of a term from donna haraway like that that trouble that we're in and you know i, I also think of like these earthworms that can now you know degrade plastics or thrive in you know heavy metal soils and and maybe even help break down those those toxins so those are some of the things i also think about too I just was thinking about intimacy with our more than human kin and and I think it is such a loss when we don't give ourselves the space and give the space and the respect to our non-human kin to honor them by being in intimate relationship with them and 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 I think things like that relationships, whether it's with a human or not, takes time. It takes attention. It takes sacrifice. It it takes a, a lot that I think in this dominant culture, not only are we oftentimes not willing to give that, but we're not even taught that that's actually what we need to give to be in reciprocity. You know, I, I just think about any human relationship, any human relationship, whether it's a family member, a lover, a friend, um, a coworker, we have to put time into those human relationships. And I, I really believe it's the same thing when it comes to plants or insects, uh, furry creatures, you know, four-legged, two-legged, winged ones. It's, it's in the same vein. And I really, I really appreciate you speaking to that. Gosh, there are so many places I want to take this conversation. There's just so many questions I have for both of you. But I, I guess the next thing I, I wanted to talk about before we moved on from are more than human kin is so I know that both of you track and trail and I know you've written reflections on tracking as an act that is both pragmatic and profoundly spiritual and with regards to healing so often we turn towards spiritual guidance and faith when we tend our wounds so I wonder if either of you can elaborate on how engaging with tracking has furthered your understanding of this practical spirituality and how based on your experiences, whether or not you see the direct connection between ecological literacy and relationship with the divine? Hmm. Yeah, um, this is such a such a good question, Ayana. And this is so speaking because I, I am, well, we're both very geeky and um, obsessed with tracking. And it's probably one of, <clears throat> I would say, like our core practices. If If I could name like a practice that's grounding all of these things that we're talking about that maybe seem really certainly probably seem very theoretical or, or intellectual to some folks. But yeah, tracking is such a way of grounding all of this. And for me, and and I have actually written about this, so I might, you know, use some of the phrases that could be found in that writing. But for me, tracking, which is basically just, it's a few things. I mean, one of it is just following you know, identifying and seeking out tracks and sign of living beings on the landscape. But it, you know, it could also, you could really expand tracking into being like any form of sort of pattern recognition or seeking out of, of, of sequences of patterns in our environment, you know, and, and so that goes all the way to like celestial sort of navigation and, um, tracking the skies and the stars, um, and also 
doing things like looking at, you know, a tree stump and, and looking at the rings and seeing what that can tell you actually about, you know, the history of, of that forest that could go back, you know, even, even a hundred or more years. So it's, it's definitely something that track, like to me, it's, it's a way of knowing really that's how, you know, I've contextualized it a bit and that way of knowing, and like this really just seems to tie back into a lot of what we've already been saying, because that way of knowing is basically like this synergy of, of these categories of art and science that we've really divided in, especially in Western, the Western sort of colonial mindset and in Western science. And the reason that it's kind of this blending or synergy of, of art and science is that there's definitely a lot of quantitative analysis and deductive logic and reasoning involved, which I think can sometimes be triggering, especially it has been to me because those forms of thinking when over relied upon have been used to really dismiss me as a queer person or dismiss, you know, identity politics or the emotions of, of marginalized peoples. And I think that's, that's part of the healing in it for me is that realizing and, and coming to this place where I, or I am gathering evidence and I am sort of like gathering this empirical evidence, but I'm also really using my imagination and using our capacity, just this beautiful gift we have as the creatures that we are of storytelling and that really tracking can't be done in any really successful way without those two things. And perhaps, you know, in other cultures, it's described in a different way or, or what I'm dividing into two ways of thinking is really one way of thinking. And I'm totally open to that. But to me, I guess in like squaring it with my sort of upbringing, it really is this blend of imagination and sort of quantitative analysis. And, and I think that that's, <clears throat> that's been really healing for me because it just has forced me to slow down and, um, really not jump to conclusions. I'm someone who has a really active intellect. And also I can, you know, I, I struggle with anxiety too. And I feel like tracking really helps me regulate my nervous system. And it really disrupts this tendency for me to go into like this sympathetic fight or flight, which can be done in an intellectual way in the form of jumping to conclusions. So yeah, that's, that's something that I would, would say, and just want to sort of create some space for bringing up anything else because there's there's so much with tracking and yeah I feel I feel like another thing that ties back to the previous question in a beautiful way is that our psychological and emotional needs just can't can't be met by just humans and this is similar to the notion that a lot of people share that you know your emotional needs can't always just be met by one person which I'm not saying that everyone thinks that or that everyone should think that but that's certainly something that is brought up a lot especially in you know, healing spaces and queer and radical spaces. And there, there is a sense in which beyond just, just my personal experience, I know that Pinar and I have, have talked a lot about how there's something about really like listening and orienting and pattern recognition. And really those three things doing those, engaging in those three things in the quote unquote natural world that, that can, I think, help us heal trauma and I know that I don't think there's been a ton of research on this. I mean, I know that EMDR therapy is partially based on this principle of like that orienting to, to stimulus across one's field, visual field, you know, calms the nervous system. But just in terms of following paths and trails, it, there's something about it that's, I think, entrancing. And, and so 
it it bring it also brings in almost a practice of trance or entrancement that I certainly don't feel that I had an outlet for as a person growing up in sort of a Protestant white setting with the various views and confinements of religion or of the sacred that, that can happen in those settings. So yeah, I, I think that that's the seeds that I'll plant and see if Pinar, if you want to like jump off from any of those, cause I know there's so much else. Oh my gosh. Tracking is like our, like so said, one of our core practices. So there's pretty much any question that's asked can be even has nothing to do with tracking. I feel like can for me be reflected on from my tracking experiences. One thing I did want to go back to a little bit, which I know is a little bit different from where tracking and trailing intersect with spirituality, but it's kind of, I mean, it kind of is, but it kind of isn't. But um, I wanted to go back to what So was saying regarding like tracking in regards to how it's supported and supports the practice that supports nervous system regulation. And for me growing up as a neurodivergent person, tracking was something like that I didn't necessarily do in terms of like wildlife tracking, quote unquote, but I would be tracking the spaces that I was in, you know, like for instance, growing up, like I was pretty hyper aware due to trauma and traumatic experiences, not only of this lifetime, but intergenerationally. And so what I found really beautiful when, as I started to learn tracking and started to also learn a little bit about stealth craft as well, is that it, it felt very familiar to me. And it was this really incredible convergence of like my love for the more than human world and also a skill that I've already developed, not by choice, but because as someone who's a trauma survivor and that's something that I'm incredibly fascinated by and did some research in and writing on in my undergraduate studies, which was um, in like somatic and depth ecopsychology. And I'm super fascinated and inspired by that intersection, especially for uh, folks of marginalized um, communities of like, okay, like let's learn these skills with tracking and like hone the skills that we already have with our awarenesses that we need as like, and that we've honed and developed already to survive within the culture that, you know, systematically erases us or targets us. So that's something that I wanted to also bring up is just this, like how tracking can actually be this really beautiful tool for empowerment, not only to ourselves, but also like expand again to like, remember that we're all, you know, the more than human community is like willing and open to also be potentially in relationship with us. And is something that, you know, we were talking about breaking that myth around human centricism and breaking that species isolation, which I think is so healing for everyone. And also particularly for folks of marginalized um, statuses. Uh, so that's something that I also really want to bring up because it's just such a place of inspiration to me. And and also one other thing when I think about tracking is, you know, that encounter, like So was saying around mystery and how So really beautifully put that into words. And the thing that I think about too is this longing that I personally feel within like my own ancestral bodies of like wanting to trail. And it's, again, goes back to that, that idea that 
of blood memory or this like ancestral memory that we have of trailing and like because our ancestors pretty much if you're alive right now all of our ancestors tracked and um, you know trailed wild animals um, and wild beings and so to me like that it's also a practice of connecting to like my ancestral body which to me is a very spiritual practice and that is very interesting as someone who again is hybrid because I I feel this deep I'm actually looking at one of my arm tattoos right now and um, where I have like several of my Andean more than human kin tattooed on me. And one of them is a guanaco, which is a wild relative of the llama. And it, it's just so fascinating to me because I like really long to track them. Like there's this like core part of myself that's just like, I really like, I've never even encountered them actually, but I've really deeply desire the encounter and that mystery and relationship of being on my ancestral lands and trailing this being who my ancestors have trailed for uh, millennia. And I think also, I also reflect back and I'm like, does the land also miss our bodies? The places that we're indigenous to in particular is what I'm thinking of. Like, does it miss our bodies trailing in, in that relationship to place and that intimacy between, you know, Guanaco and Andina people. That's just something that I, I also, that comes up for me when I think about that intersection of like spirituality and tracking and relationship with the divine. Hmm. Thank you for that. Um, so because I have so many questions for you, I'm going to just jump into another topic. Um, well, it's not another topic, but it's, it's a, it's a different angle on, on, uh, what we've been talking about. And, you know, this has kind of been mentioned a few times in the conversation, but I'm thinking about how there's, you know, a lot of communities that are built around the practice and sharing of what they call, quote, primitive living or ancestral arts or survival skills, etc. And, you know, these are relatively exclusive spaces and oftentimes they can perpetuate both the erasure of indigenous people or romanticize their presence as like this marker of a removed time. And, it's it just feels like it's a larger or it's a part of a larger conversation around who has historically or who has historically had access to outdoor recreation and what kind of culture has developed in response and of course like not just indigenous people can be excluded from these uh, spaces but also people of color and queer and trans people so I, I feel like as a group that centers people of color and queer people and decolonial practices I'd like to ask what generalizations or tendencies around survival skills or natural studies do you think are the most pressing to disband? You know, one that immediately comes to my mind is this very masculine and individualized notion of survival, you know, that we must know how to do everything on our own type of mentality. Yeah, thank you for that question. Honestly, the first thing that that brings up for me is like, you know, at Queer Nature, we we love to challenge the narrative of like, which bodies get to survive, especially within the context of white supremacy and settler colonialism, as well as, you know, ecocide. If you just Google survival skills or bushcraft, you will likely see white cishet bodies and mostly men. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. But and, you know, that to me just like also continues this erasure, like you were saying, this like the erasure of indigenous people and people of color 
as well as, you know, it's funny because like people romanticize indigenous people, First Nations people for their like their survival skills or what they, you know, in the community of like um, ancestral skills, people are seen as like playing Indian, quote unquote, which, you know, we're definitely like challenging that now and, you know, see that as really harmful and problematic and bringing in more perspectives. Again, going back to like challenging the narratives of who gets to survive and whose apocalypse are we living in? And like, I just find that so, so much richness in that dialogue, especially again, talking about Pachacuti, referring back to that, like right now I'm living in my ancestors um, apocalypse or people will call that potentially Pachacuti. And, you know, right now I feel like there's this like in dominant kind of white culture, colonial culture, there's this fascination with the apocalypse now. And, you know, all these like movies and like coming out regarding that. And, and I just find that so, you know, just so fascinating of just like, okay, like this isn't new for us, the people who are black and indigenous and other people of color. And that's something that is something that we bring up a lot in queer nature is again, challenging like what survival skills means um, as well, because, you know, remembering our own survival skills as folks who are systematically targeted, especially again, black, indigenous, trans and queer bodies is so integral. And what I mean by again, survival skills is like the skills that we have honed and developed intergenerationally to continue to still like be resilient and like, you know, be alive right now in a system that has like really like try to erase and kill us off. So that's something that also comes to my mind as you like bring that question forth. And one of our biggest passions is to teach stealth craft or some people will call that like scouting or scout skills, which can be like tactical skills and skills of evasion. And instead of calling it like the skill, like a skills of invisibility, we tend to call it skills of or practices of belonging. And one of the things that I think about too, with, you know, stealth craft, again, if you like Google scout, or even probably stealth, like you, whose bodies are you going to see? And just really wanting to honor that there's so much, there are so many stories of scouting, like going on, you know, right now with like the border crossings of indigenous and migrant communities, and also like the underground railroad, like that's like, so um, integral to bring up that like scouting isn't whose like scout stories are we like actually uplifting when we're actually thinking about those those skills um yeah. especially because like today i just i don't mean to interrupt Pinar, but that just reminds me of like this modern current fascination with like the commando and how that that is an example of this archetype of of sort of scout or stealth or like warrior that that is so uplifted and there is this fascination and, and that's that's sort of this example of the militarization of of survival skills or, or or like the sort of military framing around those skills but I, I didn't mean to interrupt yeah totally thanks for pointing that out but yeah i just feel like going off of that too like this hyper individualist survival or survivor concept is such a product of colonialism and and I also think about like whiteness and how there's this idea, you know, for that's like, I don't know, I think about some of my white friends who are doing anti-oppression work or trying to like look at their own whiteness. And they kind of at first, let's just say, because um, I don't want to overgeneralize, I see people like do it by themselves in isolation. 
because there's this narrative that like we have to specifically around whiteness that that is like inherently alienating not to say white culture itself is that or white folks are inherently like perpetuating that but just white supremacy is like built off of this idea that we have to like alienate ourselves and isolate ourselves and do everything again like by ourselves one thing that i think about too is like you know ecosystems teach us interdependence so beautifully and something that we've learned over and over in our queer nature programs is that like um like for instance in one of our courses that we teach with like friction fire is that a lot of our community members actually challenge that and are like hey like let's actually like work on this friction fire kit together like let's do it in um in tandem even if we don't even like suggest that they just go straight to it and we're just like whoa like this is so beautiful that there's this breaking of that narrative and i think that that's especially in the queer community and also within black indigenous people of color and our communities there as well that there we know that there is power in communal survival because we've had to do that to like survive and that's a beautiful adaptation that we have built together. So yeah, I just feel like that's something that I also want to bring in too regarding your question, because that just feels like there's so much richness in, in your question that um, we can delve so deep into. Yeah, and just to add on that, I Pinar pretty much said like most of what I, I would have said in answer to this question. And then one, one thing that I feel could be added is just in terms of what we need to dismantle in these mainstream notions of survival skills. And, and that's just, and this is going back to threads previously, but just the notion that the environment or that the, or that wilderness is hostile, not, not to say it's not ever hostile, but, and, you know, that's, that's kind of this polar opposite of the sort of romantic notion that things are always harmonious and, you know, in, in natural spaces or in the wilderness. But, but yeah, this idea that there, there's almost like this I feel like especially in colonial culture, there's like this strange phenomenon where it seems like there's almost this collective trauma around surviving in a hostile place. But that trauma was ironically like caused by these these people, um, these people's ancestors or our ancestors engaging in colonial settlements and imperial expansion in the first place. So I yeah, so I'm not trying to like center that trauma as being like, oh, like that, like we, we need to really focus on that. But but just merely acknowledging it, like there is something there where like in these notions that you see in, in pop culture, like on the show Naked and Afraid, for example, is a really great stark example, literally stark naked and like in the dark and afraid and, you know, just scraping by basically is that. And, and there's something there that does remind me of like the um, conceptions of the wilderness as hostile and of, you know, and First Nations, like encounters with First Nation folks and how, how those folks were, were framed, um, and, and seen by, by colonists. And, and so I feel like there's just a thread of that that's unfortunately continuing in these mainstream notions of survival skills. And like with Naked and Afraid, I mean, there's this aspect where people are dropped in a place, in a, by region in a place they don't know at all. They literally haven't been allowed to research or to know where they're going. And they're dropped there. They don't even have clothes on and they have to, you know, figure it out and survive. And one thing that we talk about a lot is that we often point out, like, there's pretty much no context in which that would have ever happened to most of our 
are ancient and also pretty recent ancestors. That's not to say that learning about emergency sort of crap hitting the fan skills, there's no place for it. And and I, I feel like there really is a place for it. I mean, I'm a wilderness EMT and I'm really interested in disaster response and those sorts of skills. But I also feel like we have to be careful with how we're imposing that rhetoric on like all of what we're calling survival skills, you know, and kind of reminds me too of our, the, the Iceman or Otzi, I think is his name. Um, you know, this thousands of maybe 5,000 ish year old fellow who was discovered in the ice with basically this full kit of gear, like this literally full kit of what, what we might now call like ultralight backpacking gear. And it was all, you know, handcrafted and, you know, he, he had fire starters and arrows and a flint napping kit in order to make new arrowheads. And so just kind of this bringing in this awareness of that we don't have to have this fear, like, or, or, or at least organize this, this, this learning journey around this fear that we're going to like be dropped somewhere without anything and without knowing anything. And that there are things that we can do, like engaging in relationship building with our, our non-human um, and non-living world that, that can really lead to helping us in those moments. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to add that. there are so many amazing points brought up by both of you from this whole idea of who quote gets to survive you know who who is survivability for and the romanticization of what surviving was and just the erasure of entire histories and or or this whole idea of naked and afraid and how the mainstream media even uh talks about the apocalypse and survival and you know, the movies, billion dollar movies probably that have these special effects with everything going down and, and, and the anxiety that it produces in people and then the scarcity that it produces in people and then how that allows people to hurt each other even more and steal, steal resources, uh, so on and so forth. I mean, we really live in that world where we're constantly being injected with this type of anxiety that we have to steal from others just so that we can somehow survive and because it's it's really it's deep i mean it's a whole vortex and and how that plays out into the ancestral skills community which is 
getting more and more trendy. And, you know, how do we, if we do want to be involved, you know, we have to ask ourselves, how do we get involved with integrity? How do we actually start for some of us? How do we start to relearn these skills um, in a way that is decolonial in nature rather than just perpetuating this white supremacist resource stealing scarcity afraid anxiety mindset i mean it's it's really it's really deep and i know we've been on this this conversation for a while i have two more questions if you both are open to that Mm -hmm. yeah definitely Okay. okay great okay so this question i know is going to uh definitely speak to a lot of our urban relatives and I know that one of Queer Nature's focuses is the development of place-based skills through nature-based workshops and immersions specifically for LGBTQ2 plus people and queer people of color. But I'm thinking about the function of space and specifically urban space. And in doing the research for this interview, I came across a reflection on how, you know, just so often queer community grows and finds refuge in urban areas So I would really love if you could share more about the dynamics between urban refuge versus the healing work and rites of passages that queer nature facilitates in, say, the mountains and forests of the Arapaho or the Uti or the Cheyenne territories that you're both currently located in. Yeah, um, I can answer that question. That's a really great question, and I really appreciate it. So often, so and I, we notice, you know, that there is this, like, kind of yeah, historical story around how, at least in like, in the colonial context, how queer folks have found refuge in urban spaces and that, you know, rural uh, spaces or like, yeah, rural places or close to like the more than human world, which they probably wouldn't call in that context, but like in spaces that are close to wilderness as not safe because queer phobic and transphobic violences that have occurred in those regions, like specifically in the rural context. And I think, you know, that's something we, we, we do discuss because like we often are either like within like, um, within like our more than human community in a park or like that's like kind of close to urban areas or we're even further away and people don't often think like, oh, queer community, let's go be outside. But most of the time there's like, again, going back to like our collective trauma as queer folks within a colonial context that, you know, there is a lot of trauma in which we've like, historically speaking, have congregated at like gay bars or at bars like around alcohol or around different substances. And, and I think there's so much intelligence to that because of the collective trauma that we've been through. And my hope is that we will continue moving towards healing and not congregate just within like those spaces and, you know, queer, queer nature, our spaces are sober and that's really important to us. And so I think, yeah, I feel like creating and facilitating queer spaces outside that acknowledge that collective trauma and also acknowledge again, that um, the colonial context of like having to like, essentially find, yeah, like you said, refuge within urban spaces to, you know, be ourselves um, is really important to, you know, voice. And also, you know, to tend to relationship to place and interspecies solidarity, you know, through ancestral skills, place-based skills, rights passage and nature connection is such a amazing potential to like really tend to that healing and that resilience within our communities. 
So yeah, and I think in terms of rites of passage work, that feels really potent in terms of, um, you know, like with the rites of passage work that we do facilitate, it it is structured in a sense that there's like a space, a time frame that you're outside immersed with the more than human community by yourself as a human, because you're not by yourself, you know, obviously with the more than human kin around for a certain amount of time fasting. And what's beautiful within those queer specific spaces is how, because of the queer framing and the container and the people who are drawn, there's actually this like incredible possibility and potential to have like mirroring happen from the natural world of our own queerness and our own gender, as well as again, not just to like, to me, I'm kind of cautious around saying that sometimes because I think the rite of passage community can inadvertently be extractive in the sense that it's like, oh, we're going out to the more than human community community to extract meaning for ourselves versus being like, oh, actually, maybe this isn't just one way, but maybe it's actually reciprocal that it is like this co-creation of meaning and co-creation of relationship that's happening. I feel like that's also important to say and like to to clarify as I'm talking about this. I think that there's just so much, again, potential with creating spaces for queer, trans, non-binary and two-spirit folks to be within a container where they can engage in these more than human conversations through you know, self-generated ceremonies that potentially will mirror back across species our resilience to one another. And sometimes that shows up as reflecting back our our queerness to ourselves and being affirmed um, in that way in particular. And what is our gift that we're bringing back um, to our communities that also include our more than human communities that are potentially really tied and like bound and amplified by our gender expression or sexuality, but not necessarily always have to be bound to that, but are informed by. So that's something I would add to that question. Yeah. And just like probably to echo some of the stuff that's been said, but like it it might be helpful too to just give like a personal anecdote for some of this stuff, because when I was in eighth grade, I believe that's when, you know, Matthew Shepard was murdered. And I feel like as you know, I'm, I guess I'm sort of on the older end of millennials, but I do feel like there's such a legit fear of rural spaces. I mean, it just, there just is, you know, in, in our consciousness and that that's like a trauma. Like like I definitely feel traumatized by that. And so, yeah, I think that I grew up in a world where to find belonging as a queer person, you moved to cities and, you know, met other humans who were queer and I think that there's still and will always be so much um, intelligence and, and beauty to that. And I also feel I, I feel like I felt inspired over the years to just not like reverse that at all, like not say like, oh, we shouldn't gather in urban areas or like this is wrong, but rather question how we can build tools of resilience for being in like rural and I don't like using the word wilderness, but remote, let's just say remote settings. And it, it just seems like, yeah, the more we get to know our non-human and other than human kin, even if we just have a few touchstones of how to relate to non-human beings in like reciprocal ways or in ways that that, that can help us ground when we're, we're in these spaces, you know, that builds resilience, which I feel like in one aspect of resilience, 
psychologically is just feeling kind of feeling competent. And I, I am hesitant to use that word because I feel like the concept of resilience has been really is really like focused on the individual in mainstream psychology. And I don't agree with that. But like just this, yeah, this notion of like sometimes, you know, for a lot of people being out in, in the woods can feel like intimidating, partially because there's not we haven't been provided with the ability to see things with granularity because we grew up in a context where like I, at least me, where I, I, as a kid loved like counting license plates and counting different like logos, you know what I mean? And, but I ne wasn't necessarily taught how to identify different plants and trees. And so it's totally natural that if I, as that person initially am going into the woods and everything just looks like this big brown and green wall of indecipherability. And so I think there's there, there's something in us that where we really we really crave taxonomy. And I don't just mean that in sort of a purely sort of Western science sense, but I also I, I just mean like, yeah, we crave pattern recognition is so we're so like thirsty for that. And and children display that all the time, just as I did when I was a kid. And so if we, you know, can turn some of those beautiful capacities and skills and then compound that with like our like additional survival skills as queer people and as and as folks of color that Pinar already spoke to how much resilience can we have in rural and remote settings like it, it kind of seems like I don't even know the answer it just sounds really awesome and I want to like keep moving towards that because it yeah like just building this familiarity and also using you know the queer nature spaces as kind of a lab for practicing these skills of resilience because it's in some ways right now it's really hard to to feel safe in the human world for me and in the social and political climate and so yeah like we we also try to create spaces where we can sort of practice being in situations or scenarios that might be more stressful if they were really happening to us but we we have this privilege and opportunity to to practice these skills like with each other in a, in a space that's safe and fun and like kind of emergent. Um, and I think that can really transfer over and, and I, I hope it can really help folks um, when they're in settings that are socially unfamiliar, but maybe they recognize the songbirds there and they're like, oh yeah, there are the chickadees doing their, doing their thing and like squabbling with each other. And, and that for nervous system regulation, I think that can go so far. I was looking at my notes and I, I honestly probably have another three hours of questions. So I'm going to <laughs> uh, reel myself back in. And really how I'd love to close this conversation is just by giving you both the space to mention anything that you feel passionate about mentioning in this moment. Um, also, it'd be helpful to know how people can support queer nature and where they can find you and how they can get involved so I'll just leave you both the space to fill in the blanks however you see fit and then hopefully sometime soon have a follow-up conversation. Yeah, um, I just wanted to say there's something that I want to bring in that I feel like we touched upon, but I also have like kind of this concern that some of the things I said about naturalist studies or about categorizing things or knowing the names of things could be slightly misleading. And I, I guess this also is a segue into like an invitation for folks who want to get more into nature connection or tracking or naturalist studies, but don't really know where to start. And I, I guess what I want to say is like all of the things that Pinar and I 
hold space for and I guess teach and mentor, you know, whether it's wildlife tracking or observing bird behavior or, you know, carving something out of wood, it's all grounded in listening. And I feel like if if we can look at naturalist studies and and also just science in general as being grounded in listening and witnessing, which I feel like we think of as a as a pretty passive act and it doesn't have to, I think it's perhaps subtle and um, kind of unassuming, but it, it's not totally passive. It's it's definitely active. And, and one, I mean, this is something that's so brought in through indigenous science. And I really want to acknowledge that, like the work of Robin Wall Kimmerer is so integral. Um, and she says something where she's like, you know, Western science asks us to learn about organisms where indigenous science asks us to learn from them. And I think that's actually from actually a, a podcast interview with her maybe on, on being, um, I forget exactly where, but, and that's something that, that we always return to. And I think it can be helpful because I think in naturalist studies, there's this focus on naming things and on knowing the name. And it's like, oh, if I don't know the name or if I don't remember the Latin name, I'm not good at, I'm not a good naturalist or I'm, and I, I just want to sort of dispel that as well, because what, you know, this newer and also indigenous, which is very old view of ecology is that, you know, it's made up of not just elements, but but relationships and relationships are actually the core. And so one of my like biggest advices that I feel like I give folks who want to get more into nature connection, including in cities, is like just just pick a spot and go there regularly and just observe and listen. And it doesn't matter if you don't know who who those beings are called by by Western science and even encouraging curiosity about what could be the original names of those beings, which is something I've been trying to work on discovering as as like a white settler. So yeah, just kind of emphasizing that. And there's so much where that confluences with trauma work and trauma studies, because I feel like healing trauma is so much about listening and witnessing and being witnessed and and being listened to. And so I just wonder with our gifts as marginalized folks and queer folks, with our gifts of tracking and listening that we're born out of adversity and, you know, often trauma, what gifts can we offer to our non-human kin of listening and holding space for them just as we're listened to by them? Um, and I, I don't pretend to have the answer to that or that it's going to be a magic bullet, but I just um, I just wanted to leave, leave that as the, the last, as at least my last word there. Um, yeah, thank you so much for this rich dialogue. I feel like, yeah, I, I feel like we could talk to you for, for hours and we really appreciate, um, the space. Yeah. I feel like, uh, one of the ways that you can get a hold of us just to bring that in, um, a, a bit is, you know, we're pretty active on Instagram. So at queer nature is the way to find us or our website, uh, queernature.org our Facebook page. Um, we're not as active on that, but you can just find us on Queer Nature if you search that on Facebook. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You both have so much to share and I'm so mm. appreciative that you've Thank spent you. the last, uh, you know, over an hour with us being able to share these thoughts. So, so much gratitude and uh, thank you again. Yeah. And thank you so much for your commitment to being accountable across species and across deep time. I'm just really, yeah, just very moved to um, see your work and, um, and be in conversation.
Thank you for listening to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was from Ila Bamba and Elisa P. The music is Like a River by Kate Wolf. As always, I'd love to thank our production team, our producer and editor, Andrew Stores, our other producer and writer, Francesca Glassbell, media director, Molly Lebov, and music coordinator, Carter Lou McElroy. You can subscribe to For the Wild podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Also, sign up for our newsletter at forthewild.world. And if you haven't already, rate us on iTunes. It really helps expand our network. All right, until next week. Through the